is Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm on the lookout for a basing phase in crude oil, but I'm far from having enough confidence to add counter-trend positions here. I don't think that consumer sentiment necessarily drives consumer activity and spending decisions, but they reflect the same thing. We are believing that there is a global recession, meaning the global economy is growing at slower than potential. Absolutely no question about it. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. Michael McKee and Tom Keen, Bloomberg Surveillance Worldwide on Bloomberg Radio Plus. Thrilled that you're with us on Bloomberg.com today. Bloomberg 1200 Boston, Bloomberg 960, the Bay Area. Good early morning in San Francisco on Sirius and XM Channel 119 across the nation. A particular good morning to 99.1 FM Washington over to Baltimore and here in gorgeous New York. I mean, truly gorgeous, like spring-like New York, Bloomberg 11.30. We say good morning as well. Bloomberg Surveillance on this Wednesday brought to you by Cone Resnick, four-day work week. Brought to you by Cone Resnick, accounting tax advisory regulatory changes can impact um, can impact your business. See how the experts at Cone Resnick can help you navigate these complexities. Find out more at ConeResnick.com. C-O-H-N-R-E-Z-N-I-C-K. ConeResnick.com. Michael McKee and Tom Key, we got lots to talk about um, today. Michael, our, our next guest has usually, he's like in, it's like in the spy, like geopolitics business he usually walks around with an entourage is well out of cornell uh, university among other things george friedman uh with geopolitical futures mike why don't you bring in uh, good mr friedman well there's a lot going on in the world um yeah. let's you kind of start with the economic aspects of it uh we're seeing uh, a lot of realignments Currencies, uh, economies, and uh, this volatility is changing global trade patterns. You've been writing about that. Uh, how is that playing out? Well, we're in an exporter crisis. Uh, it began when, in 2008 when Europe and the United States stopped buying. China really was hit by that. Uh, the Chinese hit, hit the oil producers and the commodity producers. Right now, the United States is in a good position because it exports relatively little, and that little to Mexico and Canada. The rest of the world, it depends on exports, have been smashed. Is this something that is good, bad, or just inevitable, just just the way the world turns? We constructed a world system in which exporting was one of the key variables that you looked at about economic success. Uh, it forgot the fact that an exporter's success depends on its ability as customers to buy. So when you go into a worldwide realignment, all of these highly exposed countries, these major exporters, including Germany, which exports 50% of its GDP, suddenly become highly vulnerable. And with that vulnerability, lending patterns, interest rates, and everything starts to change. How do you respond? And, and I, I think of the way you speak around the world on international politics and the the interest that George Friedman gets on what do we do? I mean, that's what you get all the time. Do you have a growth jump start? Is it, I, 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 there's so many cliches that are out there that we know, Mike and I know are worn out and ineffective. What is your jump start to get the world trade system back on track? There is no jump start. Uh, we went into a period since World War II of obsession with international exports a fabulous yeah. belief in free trade, 
Uh, we're seeing within this European Union the consequences. We're seeing that in China. We're seeing that in Russia. Uh, the lower exporters are doing relatively well, like the United States. The higher exporters in GDP are doing badly. You're going to have a long realignment on international economics. It's not a financial crisis. It's a crisis of how economies sell. This is a, a, a world of floating rate currencies, so the term currency war is, is a misnomer. But uh, are there countries that are more vulnerable to uh, than others who may not be able to adjust? You can only go so far in getting your exports going by adjusting your currency. You can do something within a normal range. You can do something. This is a massive secular shift in how the global economy works. We're looking a lot more like we did uh, back in the 19th century when the United States developed as a protectionist country, uh, more like 1950s when Germany was a protectionist country. Right. Within that and within the idea of the Germans of the 50s, do you see our foreign policy as being Westphalian a la Kissinger? Is it what Fareed Zakaria is talking about, which is Hubbin spoke with a lot more players, or we try to maintain a dominance, or is there George Friedman calculus I haven't heard of? Well, the United States is the overwhelming power in the world. We're almost a quarter of the world's economy. We're the only major military force. On the other hand, our policy since the collapse of the Soviet Union has been we're the first callers. We're the first responders to a problem. That's impossible. We've now shifted to a balance of power policy where we basically tell, for example, the Middle East, the Turks, the Iranians, the Saudis, the Israelis, you've got a problem, let us know how you're planning to handle it. We may or may not be able to help you. But we've learned that we cannot be the first responders, the first military force mm-hmm. coming in. That's a huge change in the world because everybody's waiting for the United States to do something about Syria. And we're saying to the world, well, will help you, but we're not going to be the ones doing it. Well, that raises an interesting question. It's been said the real underlying conflict of the coming years is Saudi Arabia versus Iran. They're fighting a proxy war in Syria. How does that play out? Well, badly for both countries, because these are two countries that can't really afford economically, particularly Saudi Arabia, the cost of war. Uh, I, I don't buy that particular model. The major issue in the world today is Russia. It has reemerged as not an aggressive power, but an assertive power. Uh, it's operating in the Middle East. It's putting pressure on Europe. Uh, this is a power that can only be countered by the United States. Uh, the, Syria, the Syrian issue ultimately is a secondary issue. It's very noisy. It's very intense. It's a terrible thing that's happening. But it's not going to change the global balance. But is that the kind of place that could bring the U.S. and Russia into conflict? They have been very careful, if you notice, not to be. The Russian intervention actually helped the United States. We didn't want Assad to fall because we were afraid ISIS would take over. We also couldn't support Assad. The Russians came in, protected Assad, kept Damascus Mm -hmm. out of ISIS's hands. We condemned them, and we're very pleased. Long ago and far away, I did a class paper in, I think, junior high school, but it even could have been sixth grade. They said, tell us the day before. And I did a research project on November 21st, 1963, which is an interesting exercise. People talked about foreign policy, your world, back then like adults. Why can't we have a, a debate now that's more adult and interesting in your world? We can't do that domestically, can we? 
Well, I mean, we forget McCarthyism and the claim that the State Department is full of communists. Uh, we forget John Kennedy Fair. saying, Fair. we will go anywhere, we will bear any burden, we will do anything to defend freedom, and got us into Vietnam. I'm not sure we're that immature. We Americans okay. always believe this is the worst time of all. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the public tends not to be interested in foreign policy until the kids are sent to war. And the foreign policy elite is fairly insular. They sit in Washington talking to each other and convincing each other of things. But this has been going on a long time. We've got uh, how, how would you compare the isolationism we're seeing on the campaign trail now and the public response to it to previous episodes? I mean, I... I don't know if this would compare to Lindbergh in, in the 30s. Well, the, this policy in the 30s was this. Let's hope the European balance of power holds so that we don't have to get in. We didn't anticipate the French collapsing in six weeks. That changed <laughs> the entire equation. So, you know, the term isolationism became an insult. Another way of looking at it is let's hope that the balance of power in the rest of the world maintains itself so that we don't have to go in. And that's not necessarily an irrational policy. Mm -hmm. George, very quickly, I want to tease on this. You live in Austin, Texas. Yes, I do. Tell us about the fixation on super cities now, whether London or New York and that. And yet there are all these other smaller locales that are booming. I mean, Austin's booming, right? Uh, absolutely. In fact, the traffic shows it. Uh, we chose to move to Austin, Texas. Uh, my wife's Australian, and she wanted something that was hot, dry, and had horses. But also, we moved to it because it was a livable city. I grew up in New York City. I find it unlivable. I think we're reaching the point you can't sustain the growth of these megacities around the world, yeah. these super cities. We should come back and talk about it. George Friedman, I was we're thrilled to have him in studio uh, this morning, Geopolitical Futures. Uh, formerly uh, with Stratfor, where many of you will know uh, the name. And it, all I can say is if you ever have the chance, just go listen to him speak. Because it's, it's, it's not encyclopedic. That doesn't capture it. It's just very, very smart moment to moment on our strange international relations and foreign policy. We're going to return with George Friedman. Uh, uh, futures up 15, Dow futures up 112. The yen weaker fractionally this morning. Oil is what everybody's watching. Dean Curtis was brilliant, really, focusing his cross-asset analysis down to oil, 29.87, up 83 cents. And Brent, 33.22 a barrel. Uh, gold pauses this morning down for 12.05 the ounce. Let's check in with Michael Barr now and get the latest world and national headlines. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Apple CEO Tim Cook says the company will find a federal magistrate's order to help the FBI access information on the encrypted iPhone that belonged to one of the San Bernardino, California shooters. Cook says such a move would undermine encryption by creating a backdoor that could potentially be used on future devices. A new poll shows Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton and rival Bernie Sanders in a close race in Nevada. The CNN poll shows Clinton at 48 percent and Sanders at 47 percent. Among the Republicans, Donald Trump leads the poll with 45 percent, Marco Rubio a distant second at 19 percent, and Ted Cruz at 17 percent. Pope Francis is wrapping up his trip to Mexico today with a visit to a prison and a stop at the Texas border. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom? And Michael, thanks so much. 
said a 10-year yield, that's a round number, 1.80, a higher yield by a good three basis points this morning. Risk on Bloomberg Surveillance. This news update brought to you by your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer. When it comes to winter elements, put your best four wheels forward with Mercedes-Benz 4MATIC all-wheel drive. Visit your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer for a test drive today. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. U.S. stock index futures are higher along with the price of NYMEX crude oil. Let's go to the first word breaking news desk for today's morning call. And here's Bill Maloney. Bill. Good morning, Karen. U.S. futures are maintaining their gains since the last time we spoke. Dow futures currently higher by 107 points. SB's gained 14. And NASDAQ futures rise by 38. The U.S. 10 yield hits 1.8%. And main European markets are trading higher, led by 2% gains in Germany and Italy. On the U.S. economic front at 8.30, housing starts and PPI. And at 2 p.m., FOMC minutes are released. After the bell last night, Cerner Q4 bookings missed forecast. Shares are down 13% pre-market. Devon Energy cut 2016 E&P CapEx by 56% and their dividend by 75%. And Express Scripts Q4 revenue missed estimates. Regarding earnings this morning, Garmin sees EPS below estimates. Priceline beat. Shares are up 11% pre-market. And Dr. Pepper Snapple beat. In other news, Berkshire Hathaway disclosed a $400 million stake in Kinder Morgan. Finally, some of your key Wall Street upgrades and downgrades. Rackspace cut to neutral at Credit Suisse. Cerner cut to hold at Evercore ISI. Hormel Foods cut to hold at Jefferies. And finally, Carlisle raised overweight over at Morgan Stanley. Live from the first of breaking news desk, I'm Bill Maloney. Karen? All right, thanks, Bill. And to hear live breaking news over your Bloomberg type squawk, go in your terminal. That's S-Q-U-A-W-K, go. That's a Bloomberg business flash. Tom and Mike. And Karen, uh, thanks so much. Bloomberg surveillance this morning brought to you by Invesco. Investing isn't about meeting benchmarks. It's about achieving goals. Find out how Invesco's high-conviction approach can help. Visit Invesco.com slash high-conviction. Mike, this is a sum total of what most Americans know about Russia. They walked and walked and sang memory eternal, and whenever they stopped, the singing seemed to be carried on by their feet, the horses, the gusts of wind. The opening paragraph of Dr. Zhivago. I knew. Between that, uh, yeah. between that magisterial book and Julie Christie, that describes our entire knowledge of Russia. I, I would posit you're wrong. People also know the phrase, it was the best of times, it was the worst that possibly, of times. Possibly, yeah. Beyond that, yes, they may not know so much. I was at a hockey George, tournament that week. <laughs> George Friedman with uh, Geopolitical Futures. He's the founder and chairman. Uh, before the break, you said that Russia is the greatest threat in the world today. Vladimir Putin has to run for re-election in 2008, uh, whatever we think of their electoral system. Uh, what's Russia, what's the world going to be like between now and then? D- does he have to do something to retain his popularity? Well, he's got a problem. The Soviet Union collapsed when there was extreme spending on weapons and oil prices collapsed. In Russia, you have extreme spending on weapons and oil prices have collapsed. It is going to be very hard to hold the Russian Federation together. He's doing a great job in transferring everybody's attention to foreign policy. He's doing a clinic on the United States in some ways. Uh, this is really good. He's at 80% popularity. 
But the fact is that Russia's in depression. It cannot survive at these oil prices. It is an oil-exporting economy as much as Saudi Arabia or any other. And therefore, the prospect for them is grim. That makes them dangerous because when you push somebody against the wall, um, that's when they strike back. What's a worst-case scenario for us? For us, the worst-case scenario is the Russian Federation fragments and collapses, and no one's in control of 5,000 nuclear missiles. That is the scariest thing in the world today, not interest rates. What's the odds that that could happen? Well, if the Soviet Union does, if Russia does what the Soviet Union did, the odds of that happening are fairly high, and it's very hard to get control of them. I give Foreign Affairs Magazine major credit for within a given issue showing two sides of a debate. John Mearsheimer at University of Chicago has been hypercritical of our policy, projecting NATO east towards Putin's Russia. Is he on to something there that we just completely miscalculated ancient emotions as we migrated NATO east? We were between a rock and a hard place. Europe is one of the foundations of world civilization, and one of the foundations of U.S. foreign policy. If they start pushing back into Europe, uh, that poses a unique problem. On the other hand, when we push back, we destabilize Russia. So being between a hard, a rock and a hard place, which everyone we did would be criticized. I know John, and I understand what he's saying, uh, but all of us are unaware of, I think, the fragility of Russia at this point and what could happen if it goes So apart. what's your prescription for the next president? Uh, the next president is trapped between a rock and a hard place, the same okay. as the previous one. That's your, the title of your next book. But what is the to-do list given the rock and the distance to the hard place? Henry Kissinger is in Moscow, I believe, right now. I and mean, he's trying to find some sort of foundation for making an agreement on Ukraine, which is the heart of everything. The Russians want it neutralized with no Western military presence there. Uh, the West wants him to withdraw from eastern Russia and out of the Crimea. Uh, there is a basis of some sort of agreement, but it's going to really be about the U.S. deployment in Poland and Romania, where it now placed tanks, armor, uh, weapon, uh, sorry, artillery, and other things. So will we withdraw from that? That will get the Russians to make a deal. How badly is the U.S. presidential campaign, if at all, hurting America right now? All presidential American campaign, presidential campaigns in the United States hurt America. They hurt America because it gives a chance to France to look down on us. But we managed to survive. I mean, if you look at any one of our campaigns, the seven dwarves around Ronald Reagan, but every but, Ronald, uh, but Donald Trump is a particularly amusing addition to this. I, I mean, do we run a risk here, given some of the expressed policies? No. Policy, you know, policies, by the way, don't really matter. Policies are what politicians would like to do. Reality is what determines they're going to do. No one's going to change their relationship with the United States because they can't. On the other hand, they always look down on our politics. Europeans simply don't understand the United States. So we don't need the moving van to Canada yet. I don't think you'd want to move to Canada. And given Trudeau in Canada, I'm not sure you want to be there. George Friedman, thank you very much. This is back-to-back Sir Martin Martin Sorrell, George Friedman. It could be a 13-hour show today. This is foreign affairs today. This is is terrific. George Friedman, thank you. Geopolitical Futures uh, founder. How's that Russian ruble doing? Yeah, Russian ruble actually is doing better. Stronger ruble, 76.69, way from the 80 level. 
launching dollar peso, Mexican peso as well, 18.76. Really risk on across all boards. Futures up 14. Stay with us. We need to look at economic data. Bloomberg surveillance. Coming up, the With All Due Respect highlight brought to you by Land Rover. If it's in your nature to cast off the everyday and seek adventure, the Discovery Sport was built to help your search. Visit LandRoverTriState.com for special offers during the only adventure sales event, Land Rover, above and beyond. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keen. Economic indicators are brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. When it's time to change the conversation, talk with a broker-dealer, RIA, that's ready to listen. Call 866-462-3638 or visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. Vinny Del Gidice at the First Word desk and some numbers surprise this morning. Michael, yes, housing starts down 3.8% in January to 1.099 million at an annual rate. Economists surveyed by Bloomberg had been looking for an increase. What's more, December starts revised lower. Building permits also down in January, according to the Commerce Department. Labor Department figures on inflation. The producer price index up 0.1%. Economists had anticipated the decline. The core, excluding food and energy, up 0.4%. Economists Economists had anticipated little change. Again, the producer price index up in January. Housing starts, building permits down. At the Bloomberg First Word Desk, I'm Vinny Del Judice. Let's go back to New York. Well, as uh, certainly uh, the opposite of what we were expecting today, Tom, uh, let's bring in Jeremy Lawson. He's chief economist of Standard Life on, US, uh, on the U.S. Eco data. Um, Jeremy, uh, obviously one month, you never look at just one month in any kind yeah. of data, but uh, the idea that um, we don't know what caused the housing starts. could have been weather, but uh, PPI is exactly. uh, kind of a, a surprise here. Uh, when you strip out energy, uh, you're looking at some significant increases. Yeah, sure. I mean, again, uh, you, you need to smooth through monthly sort of changes, you know, in this sort of data as well. You know, so the overall sort of trend, if you look at the, the year-on-year growth rate in the core, is still relatively modest. Uh, but but it is it is it is interesting that uh, so the year-on-year rates come up to 0.6 percent. So that also is well above the uh, well above the consensus. So maybe suggest that some of the pessimism about the uh, the longer-term inflation outlook might be a little bit misguided. How misguided might it be? And that's going to be the question on March 16th when the Fed meets. Well, so, so this is where, it's, where it gets very interesting. So market pricing, right, so if we look at inflation break-evens, not just short-term, but, but longer-term inflation break-evens, they become incredibly pessimistic about the longer-term inflation outlook, effectively saying actually they think the Fed uh, can't or won't uh, meet its inflation objectives, not just in the near term but the long term, uh, which we would push back on a fair bit. So we haven't lost that degree of faith in central banks' ability um, to meet their inflation objectives. Uh, but I think we're at the point where the market needs to see inflation surprising to the upside yeah. you know, before it's going to believe in that reflation story. Long ago and far away, this is right after Karl Marx died, you were a class tutor at the London School of Economics. I mean, talk about being in the trenches of teaching. In your world right now, Jeremy Lawson, is any of this in the textbooks? 
Could you have taught the present-day economics when you were a class tutor at the London School of Economics? Um, I think you would have had, you would needed to have gone back to more of a depression sort of era framework to talk about what was going on, mm-hmm. right? So you'd need to have had the tools around debt deflation episodes, you know, what happens when you're in a, in a liquidity trap, the sort of policy experiments that you need to conduct in those circumstances. And, and the uncertainty measured. When you look at the present yeah. economic data, including yeah. U.S. industrial production coming out in, in 40 mm-hmm. minutes, I mean, uncertainty, is it, am I right, it's off the chart right now? Well, it's very high. And so, so I think this is a really good point. Um, so one of the things that we're doing is we're looking back at historical episodes at the moment. So you look at, okay, periods where uncertainty was high, where financial markets were signaling stress, even though when we look at, say, just pure economic data, it doesn't look as bad as what's being priced into markets. And what's very interesting is that pretty much every episode like this that we've seen that didn't end in a recession, the Fed ended up having to ease monetary policy in order to prevent that recession from occurring. So this is the unstable equilibrium I think that we're in, which is uh, if you're going to be confident about the economy, can you be confident if the Fed doesn't reverse course? Because as far as we can see, there really are no historical precedents for this degree of uncertainty and financial stress to not lead to a downturn unless the Fed does ease. Yeah, well, the the Fed can cut rates 25 basis points isn't going to make a no, that's not, the only, that's not the only thing that it can do, um, so of course. So, so that's right. So cutting rates itself, although that would send a signal. But, I mean, when we talk about policy reversal, I think we're talking about a more significant reversal, which would be back into quantitative easing. Um, and then even within the QE framework, there are more radical steps the central bank can take if true sort of deflationary fears are setting in. You know, you know Ben Bernanke gave a speech 15 years ago now, you know, about helicopter money drops, right? These are the sort of things that start to have to be considered if you're in a longer-term malaise. The other thing, of course, is, you know, what we're realising is central banks can't solve these problems on their own, right? Uh, you need fiscal policy, you need structural reforms, there's a number of things that need to be done to lift growth, which have got nothing to do with central banks at all. Well, um, in none of the cases you've talked about in the past about uh, recessions, were we at the zero bound? No, can, central, can central banks prevent a recession? Um, I mean, historically, they haven't always been very good. So, so there are there are these examples where you had, you know, you had modest downturns, but it didn't lead to recession. Uh, you're right; policy was more powerful back then. We weren't at the zero lower bound. The transmission, say, through the housing and household sector uh, of policy itself and credit easing, uh, was more powerful back then. Uh, so, you know, perhaps we're about to find out whether that's whether that's true. You know, I, I think that the best thing that could be done would be for the to be a significant oh. infrastructure investment plan in the United States, right? That's the sort of thing mm-hmm. that is that is needed and would sort of help to kickstart investment, but that's not going to happen in an election year. And Jeremy, thank you so much. Jeremy Lawson is with Standard Life uh, Investments with us after economic data this morning. Again, stay with us in the 9 o'clock hour, that important, widely anticipated industrial production uh, statistic. We'll have that at 9.15 with Vinny Del Judice in perspective uh, as we uh, can. We need to remind you, Neil Kashkari will join us. What an interesting conversation that will be on finance, banking, and Kashkari's Minnesota Fed.
This hour of surveillance is brought to you by Westchester Subaru. Visit westchestersubaru.com. Here is Michael Barr with the latest headlines. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Apple says it will fight a federal magistrate's order to help the FBI crack the code into an encrypted iPhone that belonged to one of the San Bernardino, California shooters. Apple says forcing it to develop such software would essentially put millions of iPhones at risk. Syed Farouk's iPhone is configured to erase data after 10 consecutive unsuccessful attempts to unlock it. A new survey finds a number of Americans often retire earlier than they had planned. According to a University of Michigan's health and retirement study, more than a third of the people surveyed did not reach the retirement age they set when they were 58 because of health issues, family issues, layoffs, and business closings. A Houston, Texas man says he was arrested for not paying an outstanding $1,500 student loan debt from 1987. Paul Akers says seven armed U.S. Marshals showed up at his house and took him to court. Too much firepower to say that we, we can't miss this guy. We must take him down. And when you get me, you celebrate as if you've taken down El Chapo. You, you know, I'm El Paul. Aker says he was unaware of any outstanding debt and has agreed to a payment plan for his loan. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists, more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom. Thank you, Michael. Time now for the Ray Katina Auto Group Bloomberg NBC Sports Update. Here's John Stashen. All right, Mike, the Nets need a new coach and general manager and some better players as well. Yahoo reports they have offered their GM job to 40-year-old Sean Marks, the former player in the league who's been an assistant GM in San Antonio. If he accepts, the feeling is he may bring with him Ettore Messina to coach in Brooklyn next season. He's the top assistant to Greg Popovich in San Antonio. NBA trade deadline comes tomorrow. The Clippers' Doc Rivers asked about Blake Griffin. Now, I've told you we're not trading Blake, but I guess everyone else wants to keep doing that, so we'll let them do it, but no, not from us at all. It is what it is. Nothing we can do about it, you know, obviously. Uh, it frustrates you when you know nothing's going on. Griffin made his first comment since breaking his hand, punching a team employee and apologized. Miami's Chris Bosch has a calf injury. A year ago, that led to life-threatening blood clot issues. Reportedly, Bosch is now on blood thinners, which means he won't be playing for the Heat anytime soon. Hockey Philadelphia, four goals over the last nine minutes to beat the Devils 6-3. Ending their three-game win streak leaves them a point behind the Islanders, point ahead of Pittsburgh. Rangers and Blackhawks tonight at the Garden. College Troops, Illinois all over Rutgers, 82-66. The Scarlet Knights are 0-13 in the Big Ten. With the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update, I'm John Stashauer. John, thanks so much. Greatly appreciate it. Michael, Neil Kashkari coming up. This is going to be like, you know, another interview, new Fed president, somewhat like Robert Kaplan at Dallas. Interesting pick for the Minneapolis Fed. And then he dropped a bombshell yesterday. Yeah, he I'm su- banking. suggested that uh, maybe we need to break up the biggest banks. Uh, his speech either misinterpreted or deliberately misinterpreted by many in the banking industry who say, well, he hasn't paid attention to what's happened. He actually does outline a lot of what's happened. He just asks the question of whether it's been enough and says his yeah. bank is going to look into that. And he's doing a lot of interviews. We are going to bring you the pointed interview. This particularly goes to the heritage of his Minneapolis Fed. He's got awful big shoes to feel. Phil from Mr. Kachalakota, he of the uh, lower dot on the dot plot. Stay with us. The sports report was brought to you by Ray Katina Auto Group. For the most competitive luxury car buying experience, there's only Ray Katina. Visit any one of their 16 beautiful showrooms in New Jersey and New York. Call 1-800-NEW-AUTO or go to RayKatina.com. 
global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 85 years. Learn more at ADR.org. Wholesale prices in the U.S. unexpectedly increased in January as higher food costs more than made up for the plunge in energy. The one-tenth percent gain in the producer price index followed a two-tenth percent decline in December. New home construction in the U.S. unexpectedly cooled in January with housing starts dropping 3.8 percent to a 1.1 million annualized rate, the weakest in three months. Permits a proxy for future construction were little changed. U.S. stock index futures are higher with S&P E-mini futures up 14 points, Dow E-mini futures up 100 and NASDAQ E-mini futures up 40. The DAX in Germany is up 2%. Ten-year Treasury down 10.30 seconds. The yield 1.80%. NYMEX crude oil up 2.1% or 60 cents to 29.64 a barrel. COMEX gold little changed at 12.08 an ounce. The euro $1.1127 and the yen is at 114.22. That's a Bloomberg business flash. Tom and Mike. Uh, Karen, uh, uh, thanks so much. Futures up 14. Again, it is 848 on Wall Street. The following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists. I'm Megan McArdle, a columnist for Bloomberg View. With the death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, America's prepared to embark on a great political battle over whether Barack Obama will be allowed to appoint a liberal justice in his place and thereby tip the political balance of the court, possibly for decades to come. Over the next few weeks, heated arguments will be made for and against. Just keep in mind that virtually every person making those arguments would be making the exact opposite argument if the shoe were on the other foot, and some of them, in fact, already did so when Bush was in office. Each side will also try to blame the other for the mess we're now in. But both sides have been down in the trenches for some years now, and both sides fight dirty when they think it's to their advantage. The stakes are too high to do otherwise, because so many issues of fundamental values are now run through the courts rather than the legislative process. That creates two big problems. First, it federalizes more and more issues in an era when we have never been more geographically and ideologically divided. The second problem is that by putting the issues beyond the legislative debate, we leave large and passionate interest groups with no democratic recourse, not even picking up and moving to a state more suited to their values. And if they can't work inside the system, they're apt to start working against it instead. I'm Megan McArdle. For more view, please go to BloombergView.com or view Go on the Bloomberg Terminal. This has been Bloomberg View. And Bloomberg View commentaries can be heard hourly weekdays. I'm Bloomberg Radio. We thought we'd get some common sense on the dynamics of oil. Stephen Short joins us, as he has too often here uh, recently. Stephen, we've talked to you more, I think, in the last six weeks than the last six years is what it seems like. (laughs) Did anything change with Qatar, Saudi, Russia, in your world of the valves and nuts and bolts, the pipelines of the United States? did Did anybody even pause and pay homage to Qatar? Uh, well, we did for about 24 hours, Tom. That is to say that we had that large spike last Friday going into, mind you, a three-day right, holiday here. Right. And therefore, there was on speculation of what we were going to see with, you know, quote-unquote, OPEC cohesion. But the best indicator to know that the market is completely disregarding any sort of chatter coming out of OPEC yeah. is look at the forward curve, because right now, if we were really concerned about OPEC getting its act together. The forward curve, that is to say the contango in that curve, would begin to flatten. But right now we are discounting spot barrels, 
right. forward market. You don't see that in a bull market. Right. Mike, jump in here with Stephen Shark. We've got a few minutes with him. Well, do we, uh, do we not, uh, do, the market is not assuming then that this agreement is going to lead to an additional agreement. Absolutely not. Not with what what we're seeing now, because, Mike, not only keep in mind, July is your busiest month for crude oil demand. This is when our refineries are running at 95, 96 percent of capacity. That's July. Right now, I could buy oil for July delivery on the NYMEX, put it in storage and sell it in October when oil demand is at its weakest and I can still gain two dollars. And that's not just this summer. Look at next summer. I could do the exact same thing for July 2017 crude oil against October 2017 crude oil. So that discount, think of any good retailer. I don't have enough demand. I have too much supply. What do I have to do? I have to cut prices now to get the inventory off of my shelf. It's the same scenario in oil. So, Mm. guys, if we were really, really concerned about OPEC, working together, quote-unquote, then I would not be able to discount spot oil. Well, at this point, do traders have an idea of where oil can go, or are we just flying blind? We could go to 15, we could go to 45. Yeah, I I mean, I'm confident, Mike, I, I I can promise you oil cannot go below zero. That, that, that's what I can only say. That's <laughs> what all, there's a headline. It's valuable. It's go out on a limb there, Steve. I, I know I'm going out on a limb there, but yes, if we look at oil volatility, the oil VIX, we're at near record highs. If we look at credit energy risk, mm-hmm. go to your Bloomberg and do the F, uh, FICM uh, command, you can see that high-yield credit in the energy sector has gone parabolic. Right. It now requires 1,600 basis points of extra yield for paper in this sector. Right. So there are tremendous unknowns. So, yes, Mike, could we go to 45? Absolutely. Could we go to mm-hmm. 15? Absolutely. Okay. Gun to my head, we go to 15 before we go to 45. Steve Shark, very valuable. Thank you so much. The Shark Party Report. Guy. Can't say enough about it. We need to rip up the script here. We're honored to bring you before our important conversation with President Neil Kashkari of the Minneapolis Fed, someone more than qualified to opine on his bombshell speech. Arthur Levitt is the former chairman of the SEC. You know, they they make an outlier pick in Minneapolis, and I think even Neil Kashkari would agree with that. They, They pick him to be the Fed. He comes in with his maiden speech, and I believe the translation is the too big to fail banks are still here and they're not productive for America. If you were to speak to President Kashkari, what would be your advice on breaking up a Bank of America or breaking up a JP Morgan, for that matter, Wachovia? I don't think it can be done in this environment. And the Fed doesn't have total control over what it's going to do. The Congress still is the most powerful branch of government and certainly in this administration. Uh, do I wish uh, they could break up some of the banks? I think those words themselves are inflammatory. I think getting the banks to trim down some of their activities, some of the things that uh, they're doing, that certainly makes sense. But we're, we're back not exactly in the environment of 2008, but we're approaching it. We've come a long way from that. And we are slipping back. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there is uh, the feeling of business as usual throughout the banking right. world. Everybody 
is calling for some controls on the banks, but nobody's come right. up with precisely the right formula. And, and Mike, as Neil Kashkari doesn't mince words, breaking up large banks into smaller, less connected, less important entities. You can't get much clearer than that. Yeah. My, uh, his point is that uh, Dodd-Frank has n- not solved the problem. I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. And everybody, the problem with Dodd-Frank is everybody is looking at it and saying, there it is, we've done it, we're much better off. It, it hasn't come close to solving the problem. The whole question of living wills is still very much up in the air. What precisely right. will right. a living will do to preserve right. a bank in the event of failure? Is you- as you know, Arthur Levitt, every regional bank has a certain character. Minneapolis has a brilliant intellectual component coming from Gary Stern through President Kachalakota and now to President Kashkari. Within that is a non-internationalism that you get out of global Wall Street and out of New York City. Bill Dudley's got to worry about international banking. Do we risk our international projection of banking if we break up our big banks? I don't think so. We're so far ahead of every other bank in the world right now. That's a worry I would not have. But again, we're not going to break up the banks. We're going to uh, perhaps change at best, at best, Perhaps we're going to change uh, the way they do business and the products they employ. Uh, but we're not going to go back to Glass-Steagall. That just isn't going to right. happen. The bank lobby is just too strong. Let me get out front of my first question to President Kashkari. You know, you've been brilliant on this. The SEC in 2004 expanded leverage for banks. Uh, Lord Skidelsky's written about this. Simon Johnson's written about this. Andrew Ross Sorkin has it and others. Is the simple solution still to diminish leverage as the guide to sound banking? I don't think there is a simple solution, but I do think that diminishing the leverage which will impact earnings, obviously, is certainly a step in the right direction. Do you see how he gets fired up, Mike? It's like you're talking about the New York Giants in Not November quite. or December. <laughs> Arthur gets fired up about this. Mike, one last question. Uh, Chairman Levitt. Well, uh, how far should we go in making bankers uh, responsible for the actions of their banks? Well, there is a proposal now to do just that, that uh, uh, if there are misstatements, bankers themselves will be held responsible and have to pay penalties. I think it's another idea out there, but it doesn't have much traction. Okay. Philosophically makes sense, practically okay. won't happen. Arthur, this has been phenomenal. Thank you so much. What a primer as we go into this bombshell of a speech with Neil Kashkari. Arthur Levitt is the former chairman of the SEC board member here at Bloomberg LP. Futures up 15, Dow Futures up 122. Next, Neil Kashkari of the Minneapolis Fed. Stay with us.